I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to the Mick Clifford Podcast with the Irish Examiner. Now, we're just days away from the US presidential election. Four sleeps, to be exact, for those anoraks among you who, like me, are really excited about the event. This is, by common consensus, the most important US presidential election in decades, at the very least, I would think. Some might have it that the contest is between Donald Trump and the guy who isn't Donald Trump. To be fair, the latter person, as we know, is a national politician of nearly 40 years standing And according to uh, most people who know these things, a thoroughly decent man, one Joseph R. Biden Jr. Does he, though, have enough to convince the American people that he would make a better president than the incumbent Mr. Trump? Joining me to discuss this is Bob Schmuel, who's Professor Emeritus of American Studies at the University of Notre Dame. Bob is also the author of a number of books on American politics, the latest of which is The Glory and the Burden, The American Presidency from FDR to Trump. Bob, you're very welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Mick. It's fun to be with you. Bob, if we might start with the polls. Now, nationally, Joe Biden has a lead, I think, in one of them I saw this morning of 11 points. But as we know, the crucial thing is the swing states due to the electoral college system uh, that you have in the US. In your estimation, Bob, how do you think he's fixed in general in terms of the likes of Florida, Pennsylvania, Michigan and Wisconsin, which I think are probably the four most crucial ones. The other thing, too, in the same vein, is can we trust the polls this time around? That's a really good question. And I think the pollsters since 2016 have tried to really improve their work. Uh, Back in 2016, they didn't do as much of the um, polling that we see this year with uh, with the swing states. But if you take Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin, the the upper Midwest, uh, if you will, the Rust Belt, if you will, um, you see that Biden has a lead of 3.5, that's the average in Pennsylvania, 8.2 in Michigan, that's interesting, and in Wisconsin, 6.4. So he's doing very well. Pennsylvania, and we can talk about this, is the state that everybody is focusing on this year, that it might be the state that um, either makes or breaks the uh, candidacy of Joe Biden. Um, The other three that are important, and here we go below the Mason-Dixon line, uh, Florida, North Carolina, and Arizona. And in each of those, Joe Biden is leading, if you look at the uh, averages. But less than a point in Florida, less than a point in North Carolina, and only 1.3 in Arizona. So that um, 
those are certainly states to watch, and they're close right now. The other ones I'll just throw out there would be Ohio, Texas, Georgia, and Minnesota. Uh, those are ones that seem competitive and that um, that could really play big in terms of the outcome of the Electoral College. Right. And in terms of those states, Bob, um, as you say, Pennsylvania is definitely one of the biggies, along with Florida, I think. Interestingly enough, my head has gone soft from the, the, the looking at the polls, to be honest with you. But I noticed an, in the New York Times, uh, the, there was two polls out of Wisconsin yesterday. One had Biden five ahead. The other had Biden 17 ahead. Now, I think we all can accept that there's a rogue poll often here and there, irrespective of how well thought of the actual polling bodies are. But am I correct that the so-called path to the uh, 270 uh, number, which is required in terms of the Electoral College, is more difficult for Donald Trump in terms of the swing states? It is right now, absolutely. And what what you have to remember, Mick, is that back in 2016, he really ran the table and won in Pennsylvania, won in Michigan, won in Wisconsin. All three of those states um, were ones that the Democrats had historically won. Now, take his vote advantage and combine it in all three, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin, and you only get to 77,000 votes of the millions that were cast. So that basically Donald Trump caught a bolt of lightning and was able to win on really the grounds that he had just enough in those three states to carry him over the top. Um, remember, uh, Hillary Clinton did not even campaign in mm. Wisconsin. Um, very, very uh, little in Michigan. Um, that's why uh, just uh, over the weekend, this coming weekend, uh, Barack Obama and Joe Biden are going to appear in Michigan together. Uh, what does that tell you? It says, boy, do we want to win that state and uh, go home with the um, 16 electoral votes that, uh, that Michigan offers. So that um, very, uh, Donald Trump is very much on his back foot. And I would say he is on his back foot for these reasons. One is so many people are questioning and have questioned how he's handled the coronavirus situation. Um, he said he was a wartime president, but you know I don't think he ever put on a helmet uh, and really did the, the business that was necessary to control it. He, he's going around the countryside, uh, as you well know, uh, saying, let's open up, let's send everybody back to work. And um, uh, up in Michigan, just the other day, two days ago, he, he says in front of a huge crowd in Lansing, uh, your husbands are going back to work, women. Well, 
um, as many people pointed out, there might have been a few women in the audience that uh, <laughs> would have liked to have gone back to work as well. Um, there's a certain tone deafness this time. In 2016, he was new. He was fresh. He was expressing the grievances of his supporters in compelling ways. And quite frankly, I know your Irish listeners don't want to hear this, but Hillary Clinton was not a very likable candidate in the estimation of many millions of Americans. Uh, we ended up with a, a choice between, gee, um, this is the poison I have, this is the poison uh, uh, I'm offered, which poison do I take? Um, and, and Trump was able to use that this time the rallies are coming back. He wants to do them, and I'll say a word on that in just a second. But he's his, this time the grievances are his. They're not theirs. And by that I mean he keeps turning on himself and how the media are out to get him. And they won't report what they uh, should about his uh, successes and other uh, other stories. So it's woe be me um, uh, in that regard. The other thing, which is quite interesting, is that um, Donald Trump is going around the countryside to the extent that he is. And he, he's doing now three or four rallies a day. He, he gets in Air Force One, goes to an airport, comes out, gets on the stage, goes for an hour or so, jumps on the plane, goes somewhere else. The reason he's doing it is the Biden campaign it has so much more money that they are able to buy the airwaves in terms of advertising. And the Trump campaign has had to cut back on its advertising so that he is using the free media that he gets, all of the television coverage in Arizona and Michigan and Wisconsin, and he was in Nebraska the other night. Uh, he's using all that to get what he would consider his message out, and it is not costing his campaign organization a dime to do it. Yeah, he made, he made hay in that respect too, Bob. Last time around when he, he didn't have the, the money to spend he got huge amount of free airtime. the thing that strikes me though is like Biden it would appear now is, is, is in the driving seat he must be favoured at this stage but if the pandemic had not happened and I think a lot of people certainly people on this side of the Atlantic and a lot of Americans particularly on, on the coast side suggest as well would find it amazing but I think Trump there's a very good chance he would be favoured at this stage had it not been for the pandemic, notwithstanding what some would consider the chaos of the last four years. No question about that. In fact, uh, really, uh, until we get into March, when you have the uh, World Health Organization announcing or declaring that indeed this is a pandemic, and people began to take it much more seriously from really mid-March on. I think uh, I would have said, in fact, uh, I did, 
in one forum over in Ireland that um, he was indeed the favorite. And Mick, look at our look at our history since since 1900. There have been 20 elections involving incumbent presidents. In those 20, 15 of the incumbents won. Only five lost. Um, we can go backwards chronologically and look at a few of them. Uh, you would have George H.W. Bush mm-hmm. in 1992. You would have Jimmy Carter in 1980. You would have Gerald Ford in 1976. You would have Herbert Hoover in 1932. And you would have William Howard Taft in 1912. In most cases, they were elections that the incumbent lost because of economic emergencies. Um, In 1992, it was a recession that hurt um, Bush Sr. In 1980, the doldrums of Jimmy Carter's, the uh, oil situation, the inflation, all of that knocked him out. Knocked him out. The reason I'm saying this is that we were coasting in the early portion of 2020, and Donald Trump was going around saying, you've never had a better economy than you have right now. Now, many economists would dispute that, but he kept saying it over and over and over again, and people believed it. And he had a leg up at a time when the Democrats were searching for a strong candidate to take him on. Remember, Joe Biden had trouble in the early caucuses and primaries. He was third. He was fourth. He was fifth. And finally, in March, the the water spreads and he is able to walk through uh, and finally um, get a leg up on the nomination. And Bernie Sanders drops out in uh, in April. Um, but I think you're right in saying up until then, but so many people have questions on how the pandemic was handled. And two key constituencies for Donald Trump were women and seniors. In both areas, he is now underwater. And especially for seniors, and here we're looking down at places like Florida, we're also looking in Arizona, we're looking in North Carolina. Um, The way that he conducted himself and how he's handled uh, the coronavirus uh, has had a huge impact on them. And they are willing to look around and make a choice uh, of someone else, given their situation and what they see as happening in a future second term of Donald Trump. Right. And in relation to the economy, Bob, like, as you say, some will dispute how good the economy was doing, but it certainly was doing all right at the very least. And in that respect, is Trump entitled 
to credit for that or was he a lucky guy in the right place the, 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 the recession had turned by the time he came to office and you've so many forces in terms of global finance and economics these days whether or not a president even of the US can have a major impact in how the economy is going but would he be entitled to some credit there or was he just a lucky I think that uh, I think you have to give him credit and also consider himself uh, lucky. Now, what do I mean by that? He was building on the rebound that the Obama-Biden administration created after the uh, Great Recession of 2008. Um, They had built back, and the recovery was uh, robust. The unemployment rate was uh, was down, um, and Donald Trump took advantage of that. And there's nothing wrong with that. That is possibly known as the continuity of government um, and the and the economy. Uh, he kept trumpeting the uh, the way that the stock market was going and kept using that as the yardstick. Um, It's never been higher, which was true, which is true. Now, what you have to know is that only about 50%, I don't think it's even that high, of Americans have a penny in the stock market. So that uh, in a way he's talking to uh, half uh, half of the audience, but he kept using that as, as a benchmark. Um, so that Mick, more than anything, and it's it's sort of a rule of thumb, and it's probably a rule of thumb over there as much as it's here. If the economy's going good, who's ever in charge of the country uh, gets the credit for it, whether there is much involvement uh, or not. Uh, it's when the uh, economy uh, goes downwards that they take the blame, and. Um, uh, back to to a little point, which is kind of interesting. Donald Trump's previous predecessors, three of them, the three that I'll I'll point out: Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, and Barack Obama. All of them served two full terms. That's only happened one other time in American history, and that was between 1801 and 1825 with Jefferson, Madison, and Monroe, um, so that um, we have a small tradition of late of giving a president a second term, so that uh, that was another reason why I was saying that uh, he probably uh, looks good for re-election. But then the sky fell, and we all know what happened. It sure did. Bob, just to turn to Joe Biden for a minute, if I could put it this way to you, as you said, and I think it is very widely accepted, one of the great things Trump had going from in 2016 was his opponent for, for various reasons. Um, Hillary Clinton was unpopular with sections of the electorate. If I could put it this way, Joe Biden, would he be a strong candidate if he was running against someone other than Trump, who equally 
and they're very different sections of the electorate most likely, he is unpopular with. So as Trump was lucky in his opponent in 16, is Biden lucky with his opponent in 2020? Mick, that's a very clever and interesting way of expressing it. Um, The way I view Joe Biden is that he is the calm amid the storm. Um, He's the figure who has been there. Um, A a sure pair of hands in terms of his understanding of government and uh, the need for reaching out to other people and and all of that. But if you look at at his career and uh, Donald Trump seems to extract the oxygen from every discussion of politics. And, and you never get to the opponent. You don't get to, to Joe Biden. And in a, in a certain way, I think Biden has benefited from that because the emphasis on Trump makes people go, oh, geez, we can't go through this for another four years. Get me off the roller coaster. I am sick to my stomach, uh, you know, with all of the different activities and outrages and, and all of that. But but focus on Joe Biden. And here is a person who was first elected to the United States Senate in 1972. He was 29 years old when he was elected to the Senate, but he would be 30 before he was sworn in, which is the constitutional minimum for a United States senator. Okay? Yeah, that's interesting. We're not talking about a uh, shy flower, let's say. Uh, This is somebody who is ambitious. And in 1987, of course, he makes his first run for the presidency. Um, That does not go well. He has to withdraw before the early caucuses and primaries. There were charges of plagiarism that I suspect many of your listeners would uh, remember. But he goes back to the Senate. He becomes a very powerful uh, chairman of the Judiciary Committee and uh, does a number of things uh, in terms of foreign relations. For the 2008 nomination, Democratic nomination, he makes another attempt. Okay, think about that. 1988, and the next time he goes for the big brass uh, prize, it is um, it is 2008. He doesn't do very well. And he, again, leaves the race early without much competition at all. But Barack Obama, new to the United States Senate, new to national politics in 2008, sees in him someone who can help him in Washington with governing. And he becomes the vice president to a two-term president. Um, In 2015, his son dies. Bo Biden has brain cancer, passes away. From friends of mine in Washington, it was 
almost a knife in the father's heart. He had trouble with it. Any father would. Just to complete that picture, because he'd already suffered family tragedy earlier in life as well, hadn't he? He had indeed. In fact, uh, Mick, as, as I was saying, in terms of the the first election of 72, he is not sworn in yet and gets word that his wife and daughter have been killed in a car accident that also has seriously injured both of his sons. So Joe Biden is sworn in to the United States Senate in a hospital room in Delaware. And then as a devoted father makes a train trip every single day from Delaware to Washington, D.C. and back so that he can be with his sons uh, every evening. That was a routine that he kept uh, up as, as they were growing up. So that you, you have this tragedy and then you have him recovering and then you have the setback uh, of the, uh, he gets out before the 88 uh, competition really begins. So 87, he's out, goes back to the Senate, is involved, makes another run, doesn't get anywhere, but then becomes the, um, the vice president to, um, to Barack Obama. But think about it, Mick. He is really thinking in terms of, oh, after my eight years, I will make this run, which would put him at 2016. But for a variety of reasons, including the death of his son and including that um, that Barack Obama had thought that Hillary Clinton should follow him, uh, first woman, you would have the first minority um, president, then you would have the first woman, uh, and off to the races we go. Um, but um, it didn't happen that way. And he says, and I, I have no reason to, to doubt this, that really one of, the, one of the sparks or reasons why he decided to make the run this year was what uh, the president uh, said and did in terms of the Charlottesville uh, demonstration and, and what happened there. Um, there are good people on all sides, uh, on both sides, uh, as the president said. And um, if there's one quality to Joe Biden that we should underline and then underline again is the basic decency of the man. Um, he cares about people. Uh, and carry that a little further, he cares about the country and sees that um, things are not going in the way that they they should be. And let's face it, this is a person who is 77 years old, would, would be 78 at the time of his inauguration. So it's not as though um, uh, he is 
uh, a youthful, let's say it this way, a youthful figure. He quite um, openly considers himself a transitional political figure. Um, he's working with younger uh, people who are in politics, who are interested in government, uh, grooming them for the uh, the future. I mean, uh, when you look at at everything, um, America is not a place that usually looks at a person for one term. You're always looking for somebody who could serve the two full terms. With Joe Biden, I think we're looking a little differently. We're looking at a person who can end a situation, and that is um, a kind way of saying uh, Donald Trump's a term in office. Um, but we're also looking at someone who can be establishing the future um, that would follow his values and ideals. Yes, and it's interesting, Bob, you put it in terms of Joe Biden, that attribute, that decency, and I think a, a, a lot of people refer to that. And it's interesting in this context to me as well, even the, the name of your own book, The Glory and the Burden, and, and, and the burden referring to uh, the weight that's on the shoulders of presidents to, to, to the extent that the decisions they make can have such an impact on millions of people and what have you. And we've seen over the years various presidents, how they try to bear up under that burden. But I, I hope I'm not being unfair to say that I somehow don't get the impression that Donald Trump feels that burden in terms of how he might impact on people that really it's all about Donald Trump and there's very little beyond that. I think that's quite accurate, Mick. Um, you know, for his inaugural speech um, back in January of uh, 2017, President Trump said that from now on, we will have an America first policy. I, in watching him, uh, have said, really, what we have is a Trump first policy. And everything uh, revolves around him. His, for example, uh, his relationships with countries beyond the shores of America really are relationships with the leaders of those countries. And if they are nice to him, uh, Kim Jong-un and Vladimir Putin, Erdogan in, in Turkey and elsewhere, um, he's going to go overboard and um, say, oh, they're uh, they're friends of mine. I mean, possibly the most absurd uh, moment of the past four absurd years um, was was when President Trump was talking about the love letters that he received from Kim Jong Un, um, and he was showing them around as if they were Picasso masterpieces. Uh, but uh, it it is. It is very to to show you. Here, here's an example, and we're we're talking about the campaign. We're talking about recent events. Just uh, two nights ago, 
in Omaha. He is um, giving a rally. And they made an effort to bus supporters to the rally. And the temperature was um, below freezing. It was very cold. Um, and of course, Donald Trump's sensitive soul that he is kept talking about how cold it was for him, um, not really caring that much about the people. Well, he finishes his rally and gets in the motorcade and goes back to sit in a heated Air Force One. And there were hundreds of people left behind. And the campaign had not provided transportation back. If they, it was about a four mile distance that we're talking about. And numerous people became ill and had to be taken to the hospital um, because of that. Um, let's just say, um, I don't think they got get well cards from the president. Uh, maybe they're in the mail, but given our mail system over here, I'm not sure they'll ever, ever arrive. But um, you're right. It is, it is so focused on the, the personality. Yesterday, we're speaking on Thursday, so it was on Wednesday. He was in Arizona, and there is a senator there who was up for re-election, and she is having a very difficult time. The polls would indicate that she might not win. Um, and he calls out to her and says, you can come up here for one minute. One minute. That's all I want you to talk while you're here. One minute. As if to, um, to really say, I don't want to share this stage with someone who might be perceived to be a potential loser. Um, and everybody, of course, in Arizona now is talking about how she was mistreated by the president and all of that. Maybe there'll be a sympathy vote for her and they'll vote against him. But um, this, is, um, this is the way it operates. But having said that, and let me, let me finish here. You should never ask me about Donald Trump. But uh, <laughs> what I would say is, that it is indeed he is indeed a figure who looks at the mirror and sees greatness, um, perfection, in fact. But the country has millions of people, about 44 uh, percent show approval in each of the uh, uh, surveys that are done. And they would go to the mattresses supporting him to the point where many people um, uh, consider it a cult, uh, a cult of personality. Um, and most of the surveys that are done that ask the question, are you voting for Donald Trump or are you voting uh, for the Republican, will say, I am voting for Donald Trump, so that even if he should lose the 2020 election, um, he will cast a very long shadow over the uh, political landscape of America. And 
I don't know when we will see its end. Yeah. Taking it back to the election itself, Bob, two quick things. One, we've seen a very high volume of early voting. What do you read into that? Is it just down to the pandemic or is there something more to it than that? And secondly, the year 2000, I think, was the last time where things were not really conclusive in terms of who won and lost on the day after the election. Do you expect this year that we will not have a conclusive result for perhaps a day at least? And if so, and if it takes a number of days, what will that mean, particularly as Mr. Trump has said, he may not accept the result? Uh, let's take the, the, the last one first. And I would be someone who thinks that um, Donald Trump has already set the foundation for contesting the election. What do I mean by that? Um, Back in 2016, he kept talking about that the election was rigged against him. Kept saying it over and over again. Well, he wins, then it's not rigged, okay? Well, he's done exactly the same thing this time and has gone around to his rallies and and said it at the Republican National Convention and elsewhere. The only way that I can lose is if it's rigged and the Democrats steal it from me. So that I see much contestation, much litigation. Um, It will be a Florida magnified several times uh, by Trump. And let's face it, he will have the Justice Department of the United States uh, behind him if he wants to do certain things. Indeed, let's uh, uh, put all our cards on the table and say that he, in announcing his newest member of the U.S. Supreme Court, said, I want, an, I want a ninth justice on the court to decide Uh, any election uh, business that might be there. And behind that statement was, I need one more vote to be sure uh, of a contested uh, election. So put that um, at least in the back of your mind as something that might happen uh, after November the 3rd. Now, to your point about the early voting, it is the pandemic But I think it's much more than that. Um, It is also a reflection of all of the attention that the uh, U.S. Postal Service received during the summer and since then. Um, What happened is that um, it was really um, blasted across the airwaves and in newspapers that the person who is now the postmaster general um, got that job largely because he was a huge contributor to Donald Trump's campaign and to uh, the Republican Party. Not someone who was on any list to become the postmaster general. He was picked for specific reasons. Um, What did he do? He revamped uh, the post office. He uh, got rid of a lot of the sorting machines. He took out a lot of the mailboxes so that the delivery of mail in the United States is abysmal these days. 
Now, people are going uh, to their various voting locations early because they do not trust the U.S. mail to deliver their votes um, in the proper way, in the proper time. And I think a larger point is that what we see this year is, is a phenomenon where Donald Trump, we see it at his rallies, there's enormous enthusiasm by his base. His base supporters um, are with him through hell, high water, or freezing temperatures. Um, and on the Democratic side, I think, uh, I wouldn't use the word enthusiasm, uh, I would use engagement. The Democrats really want a change, and they are willing to stand in line uh, for hours to cast their votes early to make sure that they count. Here in South Bend, Indiana, um, I voted uh, about 10 days ago, and I got there at 8 in the morning, and I didn't get out of there until 9.30 uh, that morning. It was a Tuesday, which is always the slow day, a slow day. Uh, and yet there were, it was an hour and a half wait to, uh, to vote in a small, smallish city in the middle of uh, America. And people are doing that every single day in every corner of this country. Fascinating. Bob, before I let you go, I have, <laughs> I have to put you on the spot. Fast forward, late January, steps to the Capitol. Who's being sworn in? I really, you know, I hate the question, but, <laughs> but I like you. So uh, I'll, I'll keep talking a little bit. Um, I, I really think that the country, that America has reached a point where uh, Trump fatigue has become Trump exhaustion. And I think that Joe Biden is that safe pair of hands and a person who can quiet the, uh, um, the country down after so much chaos and, and all of that. And I think it, it does come back in large measure to the pandemic and what we learn about the pandemic uh, and the response of the government day in and day out. Every day, there is more revealing information. Example, um, they now have available an interview that uh, Jared Kushner gave to Bob Woodward saying that in, in mid-ish April, uh, President Trump took hold from the doctors. Basically, the political took over from the medical in responding to the pandemic. Um, stories like that unsettle people and make them think that uh, there's possibly another way, and since there's a, an election on Tuesday, a better way. And so that would be how I would... Um, 
not answer your question. <laughs> Bob Shmuel, thank you very much for joining us today for a fascinating um, look at what's going to unfold over the coming days and as we all suspect at this stage, I think, weeks. Thanks very much, Bob. Thank you, Mick. Great to be with you. And I'd also like to thank JJ Vernon, our engineer. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, all the usual platforms. And you can let me know what you think at mick.clifford at examiner.ie or on the old Twitter machine at, at Mick Cliff. See you soon, folks. <laughs>